through the month of March touching this subject. And uh, we began last week with a thesis. Our thesis for this whole class is the following. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Last week we built the, the argument that satisfaction communicates value. It communicates importance. Um, Bob, I'm going to ask you to turn this down just a little bit more, please. Or, or your monitors or something. What are we doing here? How many of you can hear me? So our thesis is God is most satisfied, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And the reason we said that is, is because satisfaction communicates value. Last week we talked about the current state of the postmodern church. We talked about how you were born with a capacity to be satisfied in God, a capacity so great, so magnificent, so grand, that no created thing is capable of giving you the satisfaction that you're looking for. That's why when we pursue the things of this life and we obtain them, in a short period of time we become bored. I gave you some illustrations last week where we we might think, well, to get a, an Audi or a BMW, and we get the BMW and save our money and buy it, and in six months the oil's not changed, the tires are punctured, the, there's scrapes on the, on the fender and that sort of thing. Or it could be uh, your house. You've worked so hard to build a house. You build your house. You enjoy your home. And in six years, you know, it's, it's the tubing is, is broken and the air conditioner is not working and the grass is not cut because you're bored with it. Or it could be the queen of the, of the universe that you wanted to marry and you prepared yourself to go and, and you dated her and, and you worked hard to win her heart and you married her and in six years, seven years, you're divorced. The things of this world can never bring the ultimate satisfaction that you and I were designed for. Now, and I would propose to you that the only thing that can bring, fulfill this abyss of satisfaction in your heart is the Creator, God Himself, through Jesus Christ. What you desire in life is very, very important. Because the object of your satisfaction will ultimately determine how you're going to live. You, will, it, you are a creature that pursues whatever brings you pleasure and joy, whether you're lost or saved. That's a fact of humanity. And so whatever we pursue as our fountain of satisfaction is going to determine how we live, what we do. 
For instance, I gave you some illustrations last week. If drugs is the object of your satisfaction, you will live a life in the pursuit of that satisfaction. You'll steal, you'll rob, you'll kill, you'll whatever, you know, and that defines how you're going to live. If sex is the object of your satisfaction, then you're willing to ruin your reputation, ruin your marriage, uh, submit yourself to physical diseases in the pursuit of what gives you satisfaction. If this, or materialism, we talked about materialism, how people work all their lives to obtain, to obtain, and they rob time from their family, their health is de de deteriorated in the pursuit to buy their toys. Well, if this is true, if the object of our satisfaction will govern how we're going to live, then it is imperative that that object be the right object. Can you say amen? It must be correct. Now, and I suggest that the only thing that can give you the satisfaction that you long for is God himself. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment, but I'm just reviewing what we did last week. So you and I were born to be satisfied with God, and you were born again so you could. All humans have this abyss of satisfaction that nothing can fill except God. But there's a barrier between us and him. It's called sin. And Jesus came, he tumbado, how do you say that? He tore down that, that barrier of sin through his sacrifice. And those who believe in him can become sons of God. And we'll talk about, I think it's 1 Peter 3.18. We'll see this in just a moment. How... Uh, his death brings us to the very fountain that we're looking for, the fountain of our satisfaction. Carnal desires will never satisfy this need. And uh, uh, they, they might satisfy you temporarily, but they can never satisfy what you were meant to have. Now, in light of all of this, We'll talk about the supremacy of God further along. But God demonstrates himself in such a way as to invite you to participate in what gives him joy. The very thing that gives him joy. And I will build the argument in the weeks to come that the thing that gives him his greatest joy is his own glory. And he invites us to participate in that through enjoying him, delighting in him. As a matter of fact, his exhortation to delight ourselves in him is not a suggestion. Bible presents it as a command. You and I are commanded to find our joy in God. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Psalms 37, 4. He says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. We know that verse, and we often emphasize the last part. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Because that's, you know, that's the way a lot of people are. But he says, delight yourselves in him. Now, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. I'll give you another one. Philippians 4.4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Again, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. By a loving God, the loving God, who loves you and invites you to come and encounter something that the world cannot encounter. I'll give you one more verse. Psalms 48, 11. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Again, a command. Rejoice, O daughters of Jerusalem. God takes this thing of his, of his infinite greatness being your source of satisfaction. He takes that very, very seriously. These verses, therefore, command us to be satisfied in Him. Now, I want you to notice these verses don't, don't command us to be born again. They don't command us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't command us to uh, find all the benefits that He has. These verses command us to delight ourselves in Him. Now, if those commands are authentic, then they must be able to be fulfilled. You and I must have that potential where we can be the most joyous, satisfied people on the face of the earth. Psalms 43.4 says... The psalmist says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. I, uh, as well as you, uh, know a lot of sad Christians. And uh, I would think that the discovery of this is just so important. Because our lives in the norm are controlled by circumstances and the conclusion of those circumstances when he invites us to come and be delighted in him. His intense inv invitation is so direct that he invites us to come and be transformed in the heart with a new, fresh desire for him that comes from the inside. It's not something compelled on the outside. It's not something forced. Satisfaction cannot be forced. It can be commanded, but it cannot be forced. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit living in us to help us reach and attain this joyful delight in him. But the object is to bring us to what Job said in Job 22. 25 through 26. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty. God wants to become our gold and our silver. He wants to become the source of your satisfaction. I mentioned a, a verse in 1 Peter 3.18, and just turn with me there just a moment if you have your Bibles. 1 Peter 3.18 this fountain of satisfaction is within reach. It's not beyond our reach. And what made it within reach was the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, to the fountain of our satisfaction, 
being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The death and resurrection of Jesus not only gave us eternal life, not only forgave us of our sin, but it tore down the wall and opened the doors for you and I to enjoy abundant living in the pure, unadulterated satisfaction in God. Several years ago, I was praying with our team, and in this prayer time, I, I, was, I, I was just praying, and I was, I was you know, these this thing that, that I'm sharing is not something I just learned. It's something that, and, and most of you know this, you, you get a glimpse of it and then God begins to form it in you and he begins to mold it and carve it in you until it becomes a part of your being. That was during that time I was praying and uh, in my prayer time I felt like the Lord said to me, you know how sometimes he speaks to you in your heart, he said, son, everything my spirit does is designed to bring you, to bring you to center. In other words, to take you out of the periphery, take you out of the, 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 the superfluous and bring you back to center. And then he said, son, you are not the center. I am. And so everything that the Lord does your salvation. Everything that the Holy Spirit does in your life, whether it's revelation of some text in the scripture, or whether it's a miracle, I believe in miracles, or whether it's some sign or wonder, or just that quiet moment when God comes and he visits you. Everything he does is ultimately purposed to bring you back to center. Why? Because there he invites you to come. And find your delight in him. Now this man who finds God as the source of his satisfaction and delight. I will conclude that he is absolutely invincible. Why do I say that? Because this man does not place his satisfaction in the things that he has. Or in the benefits that come from the pockets of God. He finds his satisfaction in God himself. And so what happens is this man who is threatened by the enemy, perhaps he loses his job or he loses even his health or he loses what it seems to be most precious to him. Those things, yes, they weigh. They weigh heavily. But they do not um, cripple this man because his life is not fixed on the things that he has, rather on the one who has him. Amen? And I would suggest that this abundant, saturated, unlimited joy, which is not something, I'm not talking about a circus act. I'm talking about something that is, that is, strong internally. This is the very essence of revival. Psalms 85, 6 says this, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The whole purpose of revival is to bring people back to center and find their joy in God. I remember in the church that I was born again in, Little Baptist Church in Ozark, Alabama. 
My football coach led me to the Lord. I went to church. Well, actually, he kept inviting me to church, inviting me to church, and I, I had uh, Brother Neighborheist was there, and he was, you know, it was a typical service in that you had the call to worship, you had three hymns, you had the announcements, you had the offering, then you had the 30-minute sermon, 35-minute sermon, and then you had the, the, the call for salvation, and then the conclusion, the benediction. Services always went 60 minutes. They never went 61 minutes. And I remember coming. <clears throat> my, my coach had invited me to come. And he, <clears throat> I just got up one Sunday. We didn't live too far, about a mile and a half from the church. I decided, I'm going to go to church. My dad was in Vietnam. I told mom, and she said, well, son, uh, I'm not going to take you to church. You'll have to go by yourself. And so I was... 14 years old, and I decided I'd walk. And so I walked in the Alabama. He got there to the church. I was dripping wet, dripping wet. Got in the back seat and uh, listened to the sermon. Now, Brother Neighbor Heist was a middle-aged man, fairly rotund, uh, no hair, and uh, nothing. there was nothing in the service that would call attention to a 14-year-old boy. I mean, there was no smoke machines. There were no loud guitars, no batter, no batteries, no uh, drums. There was nothing like that. It was just the typical typical service in which I encountered something because when he began to preach the gospel, this 14-year-old boy, having never been exposed to the gospel, for me, Jesus was the Mexican kid that went to school with us. You know, I didn't know who Jesus was. And when I, when I heard the gospel, I was pricked in my heart with a message that I did not understand. I was under conviction. And I remember during the invitation, the typical three songs, you know, three songs, just as you are, just as I am. And I, I would not come forward. Afterwards, somebody gave me a ride home, and I went back home, and every Sunday my mom would fix chicken. And we ate chicken, and, and, and she said, how was church? And I just started crying. I said, Mom, I think I'm going to hell. And Mom said, I'll never forget. She said, well, just don't worry, son. Don't worry. She said, when your daddy gets home, we'll all join the church. I said, but you don't understand. What happens if I die before then? And, and so all that afternoon, I was in conviction. And I decided I was going to go back to church that evening. So I walked back to church that evening. I got there, sat pretty much in the same place. Service was pretty similar. I mean, you know, the call to worship, three hymns, the, the uh, announcements, uh, the offering, and so on. The Brother Neighborhouse preached another message on the gospel of Jesus. And again, the Holy Spirit convicted my heart of a young boy. And when they gave the invitation that night, I could not resist. I could not resist. And I came forward and gave my life to Christ. My coach was there. Shortly afterward, I was baptized in water and joined the church and so on. But during those times in Ridgecrest Baptist Church, we used to have revival during the summer. We'd have a summer revival. I don't know if you ever remembered those. They'd plan a week where they'd invite a guest speaker to come and a guest music director to come, and it was always exciting. And on a couple occasions, what we experienced there was extended from one week to another week to another week until we had three weeks of revival. People would come after work every night I can remember youth sitting in the front where there were no pews. Uh, there just wasn't enough room. 
And there was an awakening. And I would suggest that that's what we saw in Psalms 85.6. Will you not revive us again that your people may genuinely, authentically rejoice in you? You and I were made for revival. We were made, and I, I, I wrote this down, I copied this from somebody. Just don't try to write this down. But, but you were made to be enchanted, enamored, and engrossed in God. Enthralled, enraptured, enraptured entranced, enravished, excited and enticed by God. Bedazzled, startled and staggered, smitten and stunned, spellbound, charmed and consumed by God, thrilled and thunderstruck, obsessed, preoccupied and intrigued. You were made to be impassioned, overwhelmed and gripped, enthused, electrified, tantalized, mesmerized and fascinated, captivated, exhilarated, intoxicated and infatuated with the infinite value and worth, the supremacy of God Almighty. That's what revival does. And I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, we pray, oh God, revive us again. I don't want to get to my last years in life and be a foolish old king. As I think it was in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, draws a conclusion, the difference between a foolish old king who has the crown and a genuine um, young man who loves the Lord. I don't want to come to my old age and be crusty. Be, you know, crusty. So ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest in your time, let's pray for revival. Amen? Now, let's go on. <clears throat> In this pursuit of the Lord and satisfaction in Him. I mean, you just don't wake up one day and say, Oh, I'm in love with Him. It just doesn't happen that way. It has been my observation that when someone comes to Christ, his eyes are open and he sees something of infinite value. But the, what he sees is not strong enough to motivate him to pursue that. So most of us launch out in, with a sense of discipline and a sense of duty. To follow the Lord. In my early years, I was taught that I must obey the Lord with complete obedience and faithful duty. And those who taught me were correct. They were correct. God deserves our utmost loyalty. And He deserves our unflinching obedience and our discipline. But He desires something else. He deserves that, but he wants something else. Let me ask you something. Do you serve the Lord out of duty and discipline or out of sheer delight for him? Now, I'm not saying they had to be one or the other. 
I'm not sure that even getting upon this, this road, running after the source of your satisfaction, eclipses the sense of duty or eclipses uh, discipline. Sometimes I need discipline to fulfill my joy. <laughs> but it no longer is my motive. I know men who were very disciplined in their walk with Christ. They were examples. They were examples in obedience. They were examples in um, a Bible study and examples in a life of prayer. And today, those men are back into the world. Discipline was not enough to sustain them on the long haul. The man who discipled me, I'll never forget this man. I am in, I'm doing what I'm doing today because this man invested a year of his life in me and discipled me in the Lord. He was a scientist at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Loved God. Was involved in an international organization that discipled, basically at that time it was sailors and soldiers and marines and they launched out into campuses and into churches. Those Friday nights in his living room, I learned how to pray. I learned how to study the Word. I learned how to memorize Scripture. I learned how to love. I learned how to, um, how to work. I learned how to be disciplined. We had two guys in our, in our little group. These were both uh, students at the helicopter school at Fort Rucker. One was an Army captain, and the other one was an Air Force lieutenant. Brilliant men. The Air Force lieutenant in our, in our group was so uh, outstanding in his studies that he graduated first in his class and he was awarded uh, a position. He could choose anywhere he wanted to serve on the globe. I mean, he could fly the president after that. That was the caliber of men that I learned from. And they were disciplined and they were, they were soldiers. But the man who led that Many years later, I discovered that he had divorced his wife. His children were in problems. His family life was destroyed. He had moved to another town. And I looked diligently looked to look him up because I'll always be grateful for this man. And I looked him up, called him on the phone, found his phone number, called him on the phone. And it was like I was talking to another man. A stranger. And yet at one point he was the most disciplined man I knew. Happy. We may start out with discipline and duty. And those are noble. And they are deserving of the Lord. The, the Lord deserves that. But I want to suggest to you that discipline and duty will not get you to the source of your satisfaction. And I'll tell you why. Because trust me, there is something in the arsenal of Satan that is more powerful than your discipline. Sooner or later, you're going to face something that you don't have the discipline to overcome. And then when you can't overcome it, you get condemned and get down in the mouth, like my football coach used to say. And you Everything changes. 
Proverbs 7.26 says, For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. That verse refers to the power of a prostitute. And that strong men with morals and convictions, maybe, and with, with strong uh, discipline were overcome by the eyes of a prostitute. There is something in the arsenal of the enemy that will be stronger than your discipline. But ladies and gentlemen, nothing can defeat love. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Love never fails. Are you with me this morning? I mean, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna walk in discipline. I'm gonna exercise that discipline. And I will always be uh, cognizant of my duty, my obligation to him. But Jesus wants more than just discipline and duty. The Bible is full of men and women who were driven by undeniable passion. Now I'm going to use this word passion cautiously because in the Bible, passion is almost always related to carnal desire. But I can't think of another word that fits what I want to say better than passion. And I'm not talking about a foaming at the mouth type rah, rah, rah type passion. I'm talking about something that, that emerges and explodes from the inside. We see this in Psalms 42, 1 through 2. The psalmist says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? I don't know about you, but to me, these verses ooze passion. That reflect a man who is driven not solely out of legalistic law. He's not driven out of just the, 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 the pressure to obey. There is something in him that is attracted to the Lord. Amen. Moses was a man of such passion. In Exodus 33.15, I'll read this to you. Exodus 33.15. Moses is dialoguing with the Lord, and he says, And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Don't take us out of here. How will, how will the nations know that you're with us, that we're your people, if your presence does not go with you? Now, in the context of that verse, Moses is offered an awful lot. In verses 1, he's offered land. The promised land. In verse 2, he's offered victory over all of his enemies. In verse 3, he's offered prosperity, abundant prosperity for all of his needs. 
And some people I know would have taken God up on his offer there. You know, they would have taken him up. But not Moses. Moses said, I want something more than the land. I want something more than the victory. I want something more than the prosperity. I want you, Lord. And if you don't take us up, just leave us here. It's not worth the trip. Time and time again, God demonstrates men and women who were compelled by this passion because they delighted in God. And God blessed them because delight suggests satisfaction and satisfaction suggests value. Let me close with, uh, with, with an illustration. And then uh, if you've got questions, we'll deal with some questions and then we'll close so that the choir can come in and do what they have to do. Let me write down where we stop. Let's illustrate this way. Illustrating the difference between delight and desire and duty and discipline. Let's say, for instance, it's our anniversary. And I'm going to take Judy to a fine restaurant. We get to this restaurant, and I'm dressed up. Got my tie on. She's so pretty. We sit at the table, and there's candles. And the guy walks around with his violin. Not mariachi, no, this is, this is classical violin. Fine china. The ambience is just romantic. And we're sitting there, and I say, I got something for you, honey. And I pull behind me a stack of roses, and I pull a little box of chocolates. And she looks, and the, the candlelight twinkles in her eyes. And she goes, why did you bring me here? Why, why are you doing all of this? And I say, well, this is what guys do. I mean, it's the anniversary, you know, the, the roses, the chocolates, the dinner. This, this is just what, what is done. How do you think she would feel? Betty gives me the right face. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. And my, my response would be, well, what? I did everything right. I did what, what is expected of me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what is right. But somehow that doesn't communicate the value of her work. And she's disappointed. Done everything right. But I've not communicated to her that she's supremely important. Now, another scenario. What if we're at the same place, I pull out the roses, and I give her the chocolates, and she looks at me and she says, John, why did you bring me here? And I look at her in her eyes and I say, Judy, because I wouldn't want to be with anyone else besides you. You're the most important person in my life. How do you think she's feeling? Forget the roses. Forget the chocolates. Why? Because she is important to me. And she gives me satisfaction. <laughs> she gives me satisfaction. 
This has gone on for 43 years. The Father is glorified when we are satisfied in Him. And this satisfaction is exposed and expressed in a lot of different ways. You can do all the roses and all the chocolates and still not be glorifying God. That's why Jesus said, you come to me and you praise me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. So yes, let's cultivate duty and delight. I mean duty and discipline. Be the most disciplined guy on the block. But don't glory in your discipline. Don't glory in your duty. Somewhere along the, the, the path, you will find a transformation taking place in your heart. And what was, what was an effort before now becomes a joy. That's the way it is. That's because love never fails. And I'm telling you, this pursuit of him as your one great magnificent obsession will get you to the finish line. Questions or comments? Nobody? It seems to me, help me if I'm wrong, that that one obsession to be obsessed originates with him and I either block it or I submit myself to him. I, I can't agree. What happens is our value of him and our satisfaction of him enlarges as we discover him. And we discover him primarily through intimate relationship with him in our prayer time and through the scriptures. God, being almighty God, could have demonstrated his presence by setting his throne in the middle of Jerusalem and taking a seat there for all the world to see. But he chose primarily to express himself through a book. And as you and I pursue that, he reveals himself. And we begin to see him as most glorious. Other questions or commentaries? Thank you for that one and only question. Appreciate that. Okay. Well, why don't we pray? And we'll conclude. Jesus. You came into our lives, Lord. And in a very real sense, we were just little babies with our eyes barely opened. And we lived like babies. And then we grew and became like young men and young women. 
And I thank you, Lord, for those who, whose lives have been characterized by serious discipline. Our world today is so lazy, so indifferent, pursuing its own ambition. Father, we thank you for those among us who chose to give you their very best. And we see in you, Lord, something that is utmostly worthy of our duty. I mean, Lord, when I look around, I don't see anybody else that died for me. I don't see anyone else that deserves my heartbeats like you do. So I thank you, Lord, for the discipline and the duty. But we also are aware that you desire something more than duty and discipline. You desire, Lord, a heart that is enthralled with you. We can't produce that, Lord, but you can. So I ask you, Lord, set their feet firmly on that path in the pursuit of that one thing that gives them full satisfaction. Set their, their eyes forward. Put them on that path and direct them to find in you the fountain of their deepest and greatest satisfaction. And to you will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.